Hi, and welcome back to the Skylight Books Podcast. I'm Tyler Austin, a bookseller at Skylight Books. And today I'll be joined by Kristen Lopez, who joined The Wrap as film editor in 2022. She has been a pop culture essayist, critic, and editor whose articles has appeared at Variety, MTV, TCM, and Roger Ebert. She was previously the TV editor at IndieWire, where she was nominated for a SoCal Journalism Award and National Journalism Award by the LA Press Club. Her first book, But Have You Read the Book, 52 Literary Gems That Have Inspired Our Favorite Films, is due out from Running Press and TCM on March 7th. A California native, Kristen was raised in a small suburb near Sacramento and graduated with a master's in English from uh, CSU Sacramento. She's a creator of the classic film podcast, Ticklish Business. Based in Los Angeles, she enjoys reading and finding old Hollywood connections in her neighborhood and her free time. Super impressive, super, many, many jobs, many awards, many degrees, and we're, and we're lucky to have her here on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm a, as a big Skylight Books fan, this is a, a treat. Oh, I'm so glad. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's it's like a local hood, a local neighborhood. Huh? I mean, you can't escape it if you're exactly. in the area. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well, I, I was just telling you before we got on the pod that uh, I was so excited when I saw your book. We're here to talk about, uh, uh, but have you read the book? Uh, which basically at Skylight, we have our, our running series now called Better Than the Movie. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure an alternate title that you had thought about, uh, where we do a similar thing. And uh, and I just thought like we had to get you on the pod to talk about it. So like, how did you start writing the book? Yeah, so I had always wanted to write a book. I love TCM and I had a coworker who had written two books for them. And I kind of asked him like, hey, how does one do this? Uh, and he put me in touch with TCM's publishing arm. And we talked for a long time about a lot of different ideas that I was into, none of which were this. Um, and they came back to me and said, well, we have this idea that we've already sold. We're looking for a writer for it. You know, you have a master's in English. Do you read a lot? And I had to laugh because, yes, as a person with a master's in English, you do read a lot. But as they started explaining the project to me, I was even more excited because I am a person that is incredibly impatient. I cannot wait a year or two for a movie to be made, uh, especially if it has somebody that like I love. So I do go and buy the book and read it as quickly as I can so that I can essentially know what's going to happen to get me through that year or two years that it takes to make the movie. Uh, so I do this all the time. I always read the book if they're based on an upcoming film. So when they said, well, we're doing a thing about film adaptations, I was like, uh, not only do I read a lot, but I also do this all the time. So it was really a perfect union of like a project they already had and a person who already spends way too much time reading and watching movies. <laughs> So uh, at what point did you first go like, okay, movies can be based on books and by reading the book, this is a cheat code to know what the movie is going to be. Like, do you remember the first one? Oh gosh. I don't really remember. It probably was something stupid with an actor where I was like, I have to know what's going to happen to this person <laughs> ASAP. So it was probably something really, really silly. And I'm probably glad I don't remember what it is. Um, but even even in the the reverse order, you know, I, I watch a lot of movies. And if there's they're based on a book, you know, I'll be like, well, the movie wasn't that great. So I want to know like what happens. Uh, so so for me, the I think some of the earliest gateways were like watching reading some of the more like over literary books like your Withering Heights, your Draculas, and all of that, and then eventually later, just in my classic film education, just watching those movies and knowing the book already, being like, "Huh, 
It's really weird. Frankenstein is not at all like Mary Shelley's book. Like, why they do that? Um, so, so especially when I started getting into the classic film world, you know, it, it benefited me that I had already read a lot of the books that old Hollywood based their movies on. Definitely. And I was, I was like, so, uh, excited to see that that's where you started was with 1931's Frankenstein. And, uh, I, even reading that myself, I, it, you know, I just, it's been so long. I almost don't even connect them in my mind anymore. And like seeing it down on the page, I was like, oh wow, that was really different. <laughs> um, but that's, so that's obviously like a great place to start a bit. Like even in your intro, you say like they've, they've been adapting books since the beginning of film, basically. Yeah, books are the really the, the first IP in a lot of ways back in the old Hollywood times. They had each studio had a department where they had a person whose sole job was to read all of the most popular books and present like an outline of whether the film could be adapted from a specific work. And they would buy books ahead of time, galleys. Um, and that still happens today, but not nearly to the extent that you would see it. It was a very formalized process in the old Hollywood times. And it also benefited the studio era because production took less time. So you could get a book that was maybe written in 1941 and with how long it or how quick it took to make a movie you could turn a movie out in 1942 one year after you know sometimes even nine months after and the popularity of the book would still be intact nowadays you don't really get that because movies take so long to make so sometimes you're getting a film that maybe is five years past the popularity of a book and you're like who cares about that now? Um, and because of the lack of television and social media in the, the studio era, you know, books were really ubiquitous. A lot of people would read the same book. So popularity just felt more widespread than it is now. Somebody was asking me, you know, what was the last book that you think the film had such rabid anticipation? And I think really a lot of the YA stuff of the, you know, mid 2000s, your Harry Potter's, your Hunger Games are really the last examples of the old Hollywood studio of a type of adaptation where an entire population of people knew the book. Even if you never read it, you still knew the name Katniss Everdeen or Harry Potter. And you don't get that anymore because there are so many books and there's so much content that you don't get to paper that landscape in the same way. A hundred percent. I, it's so funny. I was just having a very similar conversation with someone about that, how the world, that world has definitely changed where it's like, it's the, 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 the fracturing of the monoculture has gone to books, to everything. There's just nothing that comes out. I mean, I think the last one I really remember like that, maybe kind of in the tail end of it too, was like Gone Girl, where it was like this book, this movie, this book, this movie, like it was, that was the last big one I truly remember. But since then yeah. it's, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Slim Pickens. Exactly, exactly. And even Gone Girl, like somebody's asked me before, what's what's a movie that you don't like and a book that you like more? And, and Gone Girl is kind of my example. Like I ate Gone Girl up. I, I illicitly read it during a college class. So like when everybody, the joy of having a Kindle during college was like nobody knew what you were reading. Uh, so I was actually reading Gone Girl during class. And at a certain point, halfway through the novel, and if you've read the novel, you know exactly what part I'm thinking of. I mm -hmm. literally almost screamed in class and was like, what? when I saw the movie, I did not have that feeling. I, I So I apologize to the Fincher stands out there. I think the book is better than the film. 
which is not a popular opinion, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, okay, that's it's because I had like a rapid fire set of questions here I was going to ask you in that vein. So like, what what is your favorite adaptation that has changed the most from the book to the film? Oh, gosh. I think Wuthering Heights tends to be my go-to. You know, the book only, com uh, the film, the 1939 film, because there's been a million Wuthering Heights adaptations. The 1939 film only comprises the first 34 chapters of the Bronte novel. There's a whole second generation of people in the Bronte novel that they clearly weren't going to utilize because everybody's name is vaguely similar. So there's two Cathy's, there's a Harriton and a Hindley who are two different characters. There's an Earnshaw, which is not the last name of the main family. It's a totally different character. So I can see why they condensed it. Uh, but the biggest change is, you know, Emily Bronte's novel is far more of like a Gothic tragedy. And the film from 1939 is very firmly a love story with like a little ghost stuff in there. Uh, <laughs> not at all the like kind of sad, tragic story of like emotional manipulation and abuse that the novel is. Um, and I still love both of them equally, but I always tell people if you want something that's more aligned with the book, the PBS Masterpiece Theater version with Tom Hardy is probably closer to that than the 1939 version. The 1992 film does try to compose all of the book. Uh, and it's really silly because they they think they have Juliette Binoche, who is the actress. Uh, she's playing dual roles. She's playing her an older version and her daughter. And they just like give her a blonde wig to play the younger version. It's very silly. <laughs> I, I could see that leading to more confusion in the long run. Yeah, uh, very much so. <laughs> all right, that's a great answer. Uh, I do also remember Weathering Heights from high school and being like, wow, this thing is... It just keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> this next yeah. generation. Uh, <laughs> okay, so what is your favorite adaptation that you consider to be truest to the novel? Oh, gosh. Nothing I think is incredibly true to the novel, but I think for me, if, if we're talking about, I tend to be like, what do I, what book and film do I love just as much? Like they're on equal footing. And it's Jurassic Park. I think mm. Jurassic Park is one of the greatest examples of how you can have a director like Steven Spielberg take a book written by Michael Crichton, who was incredibly popular. We adapted a bunch of his, his movies and it's equally as good, even though the book is very different. You know, there's other characters, certain characters die in the book that don't die in the movie. Um, Ian Malcolm's bald in the book. Uh, you know, <laughs> John Hammond is the villain. Uh, there are all these different things but it's so cinematic in its own right. There's little uh, pictures and illustrations of like code and stuff. So it's almost like you're watching a film, uh, even though they're both very different. Um, another example that I always cite is No Country for Old Men. Mm, you know, the yeah. Coens lifted pretty much all of the, the book verbatim. Even some, the line exchanges are all similar. Um, but what changes is the tone. The Coens tone is far more like buoyant it's kind of darkly humorous in some ways. And the Cormac McCarthy novel is very bitter, very angry, very politicized. And that's not necessarily what the Coens give us, even though they're using all of the same beats, all of the same dialogue, but it shows you how you can use a text verbatim and you can still change it enough that it feels like it's a different source material. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, maybe my now favorite change from book to novel, making sure Jeff Goldblum's beautiful hair is intact, obviously important. 
Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's, I remember like when No Country came out, because that was like a very important movie for me as, as like a, a movie budding cinephile teen and was like, the Coens just sat down at the computer with the novel open and started typing and, you know, and, but you're right, that book is so much more bitter and, and they, they just, it's interesting to see how powerful like a director's, their tone, they can't help but be their tone. They're just those darkly comic guys and it yeah. just doesn't matter. Yeah. What I, I think too, McCarthy is just so fascinating because, you know, some people have asked me, how do you feel about authors writing scripts? And that doesn't always work in their favor you know cham raymond chandler dashiell hammett they all f scott fitzgerald they all tried their hand at script writing and and cormac mccarthy you know when he did the counselor like i i'm one of the few people that loves that movie because it's like reading a cormac mccarthy novel which is very much an acquired taste and it shows you how maybe an author doesn't always translate to an audience um you know but right now i mean we have a great example i mean uh ishiguro who wrote um Never Let Me Go, he's nominated for an Oscar now for living. So, you know, as a screenwriter. So you can get get good examples and bad examples. <laughs> I'm with you. The Counselor Rules. That's a great movie. And time's and gonna tell on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh okay, so I got uh ooh, so what is the adaptation that you were most hotly anticipating, but didn't quite live up to the what the book? Oh, gosh, this is a question I get a lot. And I have two, neither of which are in the book, because I had to cut, I had to cut, uh, I had a lot of mystery and like crime dramas in, in the first shortlist. We'll do, and they were we'll like, do 10 no. minutes. We'll do 10 minutes on that later, because that's my. Yeah, they're like, they're like, you have to take all of this out. Uh, and I also had to pick books for my book that were popular. Uh, so I was like, the movies <laughs> had to be popular, too. And I was like, nobody cares about that, this adaptation. So the two I always cite, uh, Gone Baby Gone. Uh, I love oh. Dennis Lehane. I love the book. And the Ben Affleck movie is very, very good. But the ending of that film is very different from the ending of the book, uh, mm. which I, I wish that Affleck had maybe stuck with it. But then it would have required like a whole additional subplot that would not have made sense. The one that I always tell people that just makes me mad uh, is is uh, Don Winslow's Savages that they adapted oh. in 2012. Yeah love the book i love it so very very much and the movie is about 90 percent. i'll take it mostly because of personal bias because everybody in it is gorgeous um but the ending of the film is there's like a cop-out ending and they they give the characters a happy ending and if you've read the book you're like no everybody dies like it's a bloodbath at the end which is very don winslow and i remember sitting in the theater with my mom and we both read the book we both loved it and we saw the movie they give you the ending you're like yes we're going out like oliver stone like blood and gore and sadness and then they're like just kidding that's a cop out and it's this happy ending and my my mom and i were just like no no why is this happening um so much so that I, I, you know, friends uh, follow Don Winslow on Twitter, and I asked him after I saw him, like, why did you change the ending? He's like, that was not me. That was a studio note. That was Oliver Stone. Uh, so <laughs> I always tell people if I show it to people, I turn it off with before the last ten minutes. And I'm like, well, that's how the movie ends. They're like, but there's more. I'm like, nope. That's 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 how the movie ends. That's all you need to know. So uh, you know, I I wait. I wait for the day. Supposedly Oliver Stone is this big director's cut of it. 
maybe he decides to keep the original ending, but it's always the one where I'm just like, you were going so well. Why take out a good thing? <laughs> uh yeah i love the idea of you and your mom just like shit like having a the most blood-soaked book club yeah <laughs> we were ready we we like it's the book. only time we were just like the movie's almost over but i feel like we need to leave like we need to just walk <laughs> out in disgust uh the movie didn't make any money so i think we're the only ones that care about the fact that it, it does not adhere to the source material yeah that well i yeah i mean it it's that's tough the thing i always remember that movie was like the, was that that's the first time travolta was like i'm bald yeah yeah i'm gonna admit it <laughs> exactly and the the film also like really ups the racism which is a little upsetting uh it's unrepentantly racist in a in a way and the book i think is a bit more nuanced in how it looks at like crime from like white people's perspective versus the Latino experience. Uh, so there's a bit more nuance in the source material, but this is Oliver Stone in 2012. And he's just like, nope, I have opinions and I'm going to keep them and I'm going to present them as like the whites are bad, but they're not nearly as bad as the Latino characters. So tone, again, tone can really change when you are adapting something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The Oliver Stone tone is uh, yeah. un undeniable. Certainly. I always say if that book had been adapted when Oliver Stone was like in the 90s, it might have been better. Unfortunately, we got like post 9-11 Oliver Stone, which yeah, not the stone you want. So no, no, no. Post brain meltdown. He's just yeah. not, you know, best, best pals with Putin. All that. Yeah. yeah. It's not good. Uh, let's see. So, oh, OK. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. What? So. What would you consider like have you ever read anything in a book where you're like hmm i don't know if that rang true to me and then you watch the movie and it was like they they leveled it out they fixed it what's the best change from a book to a film Ooh, you know the one i always i always it's the one if you read the my book it's the one where i had to really kind of like explain my my distaste uh so uh, uh, ernest hemingway's to have and have not is unrepentantly a racist book uh very much so to the point where I was like I don't know if I want to endorse this by putting it in the book uh and they were like TCM was like well you can always start over with a new book and I had already watched the movie I was already like five chapters and it was the last book I needed to do I'm like nope just gonna just gonna go through uh Power so through. pretty much what I discovered was that Howard Hawks the director of to have and have not and Ernest Hemingway made a bet during a drunken night uh, that that Hawks could turn a decent film out of his uh, Hemingway's worst novel, and that's what he did. Uh, he made to to have and have not. It's a Casablanca ripoff. It has very little to do with the original source material. But I think for me, the version that I prefer is from 1950. It's the Breaking Point, and that is closer to the book. But Michael Curtiz and the screenwriter add in a black character played by Juan o. Hernandez, who uh, is the the right hand man of the main character played by John Garfield, and it's such a beautiful, heartbreaking relationship. And you come to feel for the character. And the end of the film, the final image, is just this sad, like poignant 
very, I think that like it's aged ridiculously well in how we sacrifice people of color. And I just, every time I watch that, I'm like, God, I want to know what Hemingway thought about that. Cause he wrote like <laughs> a ridiculously racist book, like hates on all ethnicities equally. Like I had to irk him a little bit that they turned his movie and like add in this person of color that you feel for more than anybody else. So I, I always tip my hat uh, to, to the screenwriter for the breaking point for actually like maybe kind of trolling Hemingway's book and being like, well, we're actually going to make it far more inclusive than you did. <laughs> uh, I, I'm so glad you brought that one up because that is, uh, I actually just saw that move to Have and Have Not. I saw the uh, that version mm-hmm. on in theaters recently and mm-hmm. was, and and really, and was just like, you're, you're just blown away by like Bogey and McCall. Like they're yeah. so, <laughs> but you're, it's, it is A, a shameless Casablanca ripoff. Yeah. Um, B, uh, I was just like, there's the moment where like the the famous their famous chemistry is just like them going back and forth between each other's rooms like three or four yeah. times in a row. So you, the movie just stops for that to happen. <laughs> and I was yeah. Like, huh. Interesting. I wonder if there's a better version of this out there. And then I got to the end of that entry, and I was like, there is a better version, and it was directed by the guy who did Casablanca, even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Most people forget what the plot of To Have and Have Not is. Like, they're so wrapped up in the bogey and Bacall that they forget that there's this whole, like, people smuggling plot, yeah. and, like, um, and and really Warner Brothers, they, the studio just wanted a cast, another Casablanca version. Uh, I think an addendum to that story that I always love is that it did cause a falling out between Howard Hawks and Ernest Hemingway, because Hemingway was more upset about the fact that Hawks just kept peddling the rights to different studios, and he made money every time he tried to sell the rights to a studio who maybe put it in turnaround eventually. He made more trying to sell the book then Hemingway made writing the book. Uh, and so Hemingway was always upset that he didn't get his monetary due for the the book. And I was like, you should just be lucky that somebody made a decent movie out of it that anybody remembers that book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you should really hope that that book is forgotten and that the yes. reason of everything people remember is the, uh, you know, put your lips together and blow. Like that's Exactly, blow. yes. That's, exactly, yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, truly, in my mind, when I was looking up that, and I'd seen the movie before, but I was like, wow, her Hemingway, like that, the 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 trademark of genius is on this film, yeah. like literary giant, and it's like, oh, boy, yikes. Yeah, yeah, the the other one, I think, also levels the playing field really well between the, the source material. It's not in the, the, my book, because I tended to prioritize books that I liked, because the goal is to get people to read. You know, so I didn't want to put books where I was like, nobody's going to spend time reading this. Um, but American Psycho is a great example. I know Brett Easton Ellis hates the movie, but honestly, I mean, the the book is fine, but I think the movie really does double down on a lot of the themes that he's trying to espouse in the book um, in a way that is just, it's so timely. That movie has aged ridiculously well, even though it's set in the 80s. Uh, and and I think that if anything, most people know of the book because they know of the film. So uh, I wish you would just like appreciate it a bit more. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I'm always blown away. I mean, like the authors who are mad. Well, I actually saw just the very first episode of, of our series of pods that we podcast we did was the Knock at the Cabin and Cabin at the End of the World, which Paul Tremblay, which diverts wildly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
wildly, which we literally were like, how do we even begin to unpack this? Um, <laughs> and, and so it was such an interesting starting point in terms of adaptation, because you could really see, which I think kind of speaks to, and, and you put it out, and even in, in a lot of what we've just been talking about is how books can always go to darker places. Yeah. Um, they're more involved, you're, they're so much more emotionally involved. And it's just that adaptation from book to film, like the the soft edges, you know, you have to put the soft edge, you have to round out the heart, the jagged corners of it, um, which I think is so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that, you know, some, you understand in most instances, if you read the book, why certain changes have to be made. You know, film is a totally different medium than reading a book. You have to sustain an audience in a different way audiences will only take so much weirdness uh, but at the same time you know I think if you're eliminating some of the fundamental themes of a book it can lead to a bad movie you know Knock at the Cabin I think is a perfectly fine film uh, but when you read the book and you get like the tone that there that Paul Tremblay is trying to convey in the theme of like what his ultimate message is I mean I definitely was just like that's a Shyamalan twist right there. I don't know why he would have shied away from that. Like it just, it it's very frustrating. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, in a lot of instances, a good screenwriter, you know, it's a quote that I include in the, the book, but W.S. Van Dyke, who wrote, uh, worked on the Thin Man movies, you know, he gave mm -hmm. the script to the, uh, to the novel to the screenwriters and said, use the book as a foundation, not a guide. And I think that that's a great, great adage for screenwriters is that, you know, you may have the source material and you can deviate from it, but don't forget what makes people want to read this book in the first place. Definitely, definitely. And uh, well, so you, you bring up the Thin Man and, and there's something like also it's obviously the chemistry is there on the page and and but they are very different. And then you get William Powell and Verna Loy and that's just something that transcends everything, right? It's like, you know, just like, unfortunately, the book can't capture the way that they look at each other. Their their sort of chemistry, their their cackling dialogue. It's like it just it's it's wide, but but both can exist on their own and work really well, even if they go in completely different directions. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a great example is, is even something like Psycho, the the Robert Block novel, is very dark and and grim and Norman Bates is far harder to love in the book, you know, than he is presented by Anthony Perkins in, in the film. Uh, and I think you can, those two things can coexist in such a great way where, you know, if you love the movie enough, you go back and you read the book and you're like, huh, this causes me to look at this in a totally different light. Like I still love it, but like, why is Norman Bates like a tall, skinny, good looking dude when in the book, mm -hmm. you know, he's not. Uh, which is also a thing that, you know, adaptations of Carrie also, you know, I always get like Earth like, I know right away if all if an adaptation of Carrie will work for me because of you know how like hot the actress is like no disrespect <laughs> to like Sissy Spacek, Chloe Grace Moretz, but like that's not the Carrie of the original novel you know at all. Uh, and and so I do love sometimes the Hollywoodization of of adaptations. Definitely, that's uh, always on there. Well, so I was uh, thinking of two other ones like that where I feel like the the movies elevate the book in a way because I think like Jaws and The Godfather, when you read those as like a kid who's watched Jaws and The Godfather, you're like, these are pulpy, like sexy books, which I did not really get from the movies at all. These are classy, like, you know, well, you know, and so I had like, I'm trying to think of like, how have you 
did, did you have that same reaction, I guess, to those two where you're like, wow, these movies really set a different tone, you know, different standard of quality, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that tone is such a difficult needle to thread, you know, it, it really, really is because what works on the page doesn't always work in, in your film. Uh, and so, you know, I, I definitely think some, some screenwriters just are more adept at it than others. Um, and I totally forgot what movies we were talking about. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, Jaws, Jaws, which eliminates like an entire sort of yeah. love triangle subplot. And then the Godfather, which eliminates a whole bunch. Yeah. Of like Jaws, Jaws is interesting because a lot of people say it's the worst book. You know, it's the it's the movie like most a lot of people don't like the book. Um, I think the Jaws is a really interesting case because a lot of people don't even know it's based on a book. You know, right. they forget the Peter Benchley novel. And I remember reading it for the first time when I was working on this. And I was just like, right away, you're struck by like Benchley's big, long examples of like the Amity history, you know, and, and yes. capitalism and how the shark is like causing people not to be able to feed their children, um, you know, and, and that's before you even get talk about like Hooper being like looking like Brad Pitt and like this really like frank, explicit discussion that, that him and Mrs. Brody have before they sleep together. Uh, I was just like reading this like, what is happening here? Um, but I think that, you know, Benchley's whole thing was that he wanted the shark to be a metaphor for like mm -hmm. any type of blight that that in ruins a town and, you know, maybe the mob is involved in there in some way. Um, but mm -hmm. it's just, I think that Spielberg really did work. I mean, he's got three adaptations in my book. I think he really does understand what makes a book successful and you know he tried to adapt as much of it as he could but i think really condensing it into this the sharks the story of like government corruption with a shark film really does help streamline things a lot more you know the godfather that was such a beast to get into production um and when you read it you know it's it's very all of the beats you expect from the book are translated fairly faithfully into the finished product um you know which i i really appreciate and that's another great example of like you can read that book and feel like you're watching the movie it's so cinematic mm -hmm. it moves so quickly it's so well written you know you can see why puzo was was tasked with working on the script it's a really great example of like how you can actually work with an author of their own text and create something good nick pelagi is another great example who did uh goodfellas uh, based off of his own book and I think that but you do need somebody like a, a film person guiding that hand like Puzo had Coppola helping him Pelagi had Scorsese helping him like I don't think you can always just let a writer be like well you know how to write you can do a script right uh, <laughs> yeah. you know like I think you do need a film person there that can help shape and make it less you know the moments where it needs to be more filmy you can work with that. The moments where it needs to be more book-like, you can work with that. Definitely. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and uh, well, Goodfellas is a great example where that yeah. movie to me is the most movie. Like you would be yeah. like, this is like, it's, it's an MGM musical. It's yeah. MTV cutting. It does everything. Yeah. But you, you hear like Scorsese and Pelagi talk about how they work. They just like, we're in an office together. And they had old movies on in the background on mute and Scorsese would mouth along to every word. And you're like, yeah, I could see. And, and yeah. like, you love that. And they would start doing dialogue back and forth. And you're like, oh, I could see how these guys would work together. One guy 
has such a mind for story and one guy has such a mind for visuals yeah. and you put that together it just works really well and it's it wise guy is always my favorite thing to talk about because most people read it and they're very disappointed because the movie holds such a high bar but the book also is like henry hill was not nearly as involved in stuff as he is in the film like the lufthansa heist which is a core element of the movie henry hill wasn't even there he admits right. that he was like involved in some point shaving scheme and he wasn't even like around. And the book is really looking at an ensemble group of people, uh, which I find I always find funny when, you know, because Henry Hill made his bread and butter for years off of his like supposed involvement as this main player when really he was just like one dude in a group of <laughs> dudes. Uh you know, which I, and that's another great example, like you add on top of that biopic, you know, is it technically a mm -hmm. biopic because Henry Hill, it's not, it's about his life, but as Pelagi would lay out in his book, like he was not a central figure, uh, which is always funny. Yeah. Well, and, and which makes it a great mirror for something like The Godfather, where it's like, we are at the top, tippy top of this organization and, and it's going to be written in this heightened way and it's going to be filmed in this heightened classical way. And then you go to the Goodfellas and you're like, we're at the bottom, we're below the bottom of this organization. Guys, yeah. you can't even get into the organization. And it's shot in a way that does portrays it there. They're dirtbags. <laughs> they're, they're just dirt Yeah. Bags. And I think like right around, I think within like three weeks after Goodfellas came out, you know, Nora Ephron, who was married to Nick Pelagi at the time, wrote My Blue Heaven, which is also based off of Henry Hill's life. And it's a comedy very different film so I love that within a relatively close amount of time you get very dueling looks at Henry Hill's life neither of which are actually based on the you know elements of his life that he was involved in. yes exactly yeah and, and again yeah yeah you get this very charming version with like Steve Martin and yeah. then it's like oh no Henry Hill was the one he was terrible yeah. he was yeah. yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> yeah uh that's so funny well I, I guess uh how did you, uh, I'll start to kind of, we'll, we'll start to wrap up a little bit, but so how did you come to 52 as a number and how did you possibly winnow it down to 52? <laughs> I mean, the, originally they were like, just list all of the adaptations you know of. We need to know how viable an idea this was. So I gave them like 85 books. Um, they were like, well, we know we want it to be between like 40 and 75. Um, and so I knew I had my work cut out for me because I would have to read, you know, as much as I could. Um, so I, I kind of winnowed it down to stuff that I either knew like the back of my hand through like college or just rereading, um, or things that I wanted to read that I had been putting on my list for years. There's, I also made a conscious choice not to have too many big texts. So I think The Shining and Valley of the Dolls are the longest books I actually had. Um, so we went back and forth, you know, looking at like diversity of authors, diversity of eras, diversity of genre. Um, we had to make sure that the books were accessible to people. Some books that I wanted to include were out of print or not easily available to an audience. Um, we eliminated a couple of novellas. They needed to be actual book length. So as much as I wanted to do, we could remember it for you wholesale. Uh, the Philip K. Dick novel that became Total Recall. It is not a full length text. So I couldn't include it. Uh, and eventually, uh, 52 people have asked me, they're like, oh, you picked one for every week of the year. I wish I was that smart. Um, <laughs> I was mostly just like, well, this sounds like a good number. I think I can do this. <laughs> so that's that's how we got it. Okay. That Yeah, I, I kind of made that assumption as well. It's like, okay, I can read the book from Monday to Saturday. Sunday, I watch the movie. If I'm going to do like a big watch and read along. 
Uh, all right, well, let's do a crime corner here. What? So, what do you what do you got? What are your best crime books? What are your best crime movies based on books? Oh, I mean, most I had a lot of Dennis Lehane stuff on my mm. my original list. My original, uh, I had to do two sample chapters, and my sample chapters were Wuthering Heights and Mystic River. Um, nice. Which Mystic River is such a great book. Clint Eastwood did his whiz bang with the film uh, and it does feel very Clint Eastwood, but it also does have that Dennis Lehane grit to it. I think I had Shutter Island on there. I had Gone mm, Baby Gone. Yeah. Um, you know, I had a lot of James M. Kane, Double Indemnity, Postman Always Rings Twice, which I only ended up with one, which was Mildred Pierce. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> a lot of, I, I mean, I think like mystery is such a compelling genre for adaptation. Uh, I was just telling somebody, like, if I ever get to do a volume two, like, right off the bat, I want to do Death on the Nile. Uh, oh, just yes. The recent film is so bonkers and weird. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I know that he wanted, Kenneth Branagh wanted to do Agatha Christie that Fs, you know, but, like, did we need that? Did we? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I haven't read Death on the Nile, so or I have read Death on the Nile, uh, and the book is just you know, standard Christy fare, a uh, little less racist than some of the other ones, uh, <laughs> which is nice. So, so yeah, I, I think that, you know, the, the crime world is just one where, you know, it's always fun to get to see like how they're changing things and, and, you know, what, what type of like Shutter Island is a great example. I love the book so much and Scorsese did a fairly faithful job, but it does lose something. Like there's something mm. missing. There's an intangible like it factor that does not have the same like power as it did when I read the book before. Um, so so yeah, I had I had a lot of of ones where they were just like, you already have a bunch of crime, you know. Um, so do you do you feel like you need like three Dennis Lane movies? I'm like, why well, have three Spielberg films? Why can't we just have all the Lahade? So well, I did. I'm, I'm for, I was fortunate to meet Dennis Lehane recently, and I told him, "I'm like, so many of your books almost made this this um, list." I'm like, if I ever do a volume two, it's gonna be really hard not to just have it be like Dennis Lehane adaptations. Uh, <laughs> you know, good, good, bad, and somewhere in between. I will be first in line for the like all crime mystery spinoff of this. Please, like, uh, I it's yeah. phenomenal. Uh, I was gonna. Well, uh, boy, so many things you've just popped in yeah. my brain because I was just thinking about it. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, Death on the Nile. Let's quickly. Uh, would you do, you would do the more recent one, not the seventies? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen I haven't seen the the seventies one. Uh, you know, which the seventies adaptations are really fascinating. You know, one I I couldn't I didn't uh, I included The Great Gatsby in my book, but I didn't mm. talk about the seventies version. Talked about the twenty thirteen version. I actually prefer the seventies version uh, of all things, but. I feel like 70s literary adaptations, you know, tried very hard to like be gritty 70s films, but they're all very like classy, formal affairs. And yeah, the most recent Death on the Nile, like outside of the personal issues with its cast, notwithstanding, it was really the first time that I'd ever seen a movie try to sell like, this isn't your grandma's Agatha Christie. This is like Agatha Christie if she was in euphoria. Like, you know, maybe not that insane, but like it really wanted to make this like this horny thirsty sweaty Agatha Christie adaptation which none of those are adjectives you would use to explain Agatha Christie books uh so the fact that like Kenneth Branagh is making this movie about you know how he got his mustache which oh, I don't know God. why we needed that background uh you know a, a horny dance sequence involving a girl like face down on the floor 
Wonder Woman trying to seduce a dude out, like on an Egyptian, you know, monument. Like these are all things that I was just like, this is not in the book. And yet I am incredibly compelled by how bizarre this whole thing is. It's like, I would love to know what Branagh did when he sat down and read this book and was just like, I think I can make this like way thirstier. Like I think that's what it's missing. <laughs> I think this is what it means. Yes, yes, truly from second one of that movie. Well, first, because you get the mustache origin story, which is insane. Uh, yeah. And I was like, I was like, am I in the wrong movie? Did they start 1917? Where am I? I'm like, right yeah. now. Yeah, I was like, is this trenches? like a Joker? Like, why are we giving him like a Joker-esque backstory of like, you want to know how I got this mustache? <laughs> no, I actually wasn't curious, but I guess you're going to tell me. <laughs> they also turn Perot into Monk for like three seconds where he yeah. like has to have the perfect number of desserts, but then they completely forget it. It's all over the place. It's wild. Yeah. Yes. And the one thing I will say about the 70s is that like they are like, and you know, maybe this is bad, uh, but they're literally just shooting on like the pyramids. They're yeah. there. You were there. It is a travelogue <clears throat> where Death on the Nile looks like it was all shot on like a parking lot in Atlanta. Uh, and then they just green screened over it. So it's it's a it, that would be one ripe for uh, some some interpretation on your part there for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so well, this has been just an absolute blast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, and, thank uh, you. We will have to get you on uh, our version of uh, better than the movie. We'll pick something uh, maybe sometime in the next couple of months. We'll get you on. I'm always, always around. So, so many adaptations, so little time. Exactly. This is it. Uh, also, <laughs> oh, and then I will just throw out also, because I, I like own the crime mystery section of Skylight Books. Uh, I love The Hunter by Richard Stark, which became point blank. Rules, yeah. rips, absolutely great. And I, uh, Friends of Eddie Coyle. Yeah. Both the book and the movie, phenomenal. Old Robert Mitchum, so good. Oh my God. So. Just got to get those in there. Get a plugs into there. Come yes. to Skylight Books and buy those books, please. You'll see my name tag underneath them saying why they're so great. Uh, <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, thanks so much again, Kristen. And uh, yeah, come visit us at 1818 Skylight uh, on Vermont uh, at Skylight Books. And uh, we'll, we'll see you back on the next one. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time. <laughs>